This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Rebecca Ford, and for this week's interview episode, I'm joined by David Canfield. Hi, David. Hi, Rebecca. So we've got two really great interviews uh, this week. I think we should start with yours, which is with Dominique Fishback, um, who stars in Swarm. She is just one of those actors that I feel like you can't take your eyes off her when she's on screen. And Swarm seems like an incredibly demanding project. So what did she have to say about it? Yeah, first of all, she's such a bright light to interview. And after you watch the show and it's this tour de four and really, really intensely dramatic at times, it was kind of disarming to see just how bubbly and um, kind of infectious her personality was. And I, I think that also reflected the way she experienced the show, which is having an understanding that this would require a really different kind of prep process than what she was used to, a different kind of immersion learning how to sort of balance taking it home versus keeping it um, on set. And overall, I think she is taking in the feeling that this marked a real breakthrough for her, not only as an actor, but as, as someone in this industry who can be looked at in some different ways now. Did you talk a lot about the collaboration with Donald Glover? Because I feel like he had such a specific vision for this story. Yeah, I mean, this first came to her um, with the proposal to play a smaller part and she essentially said no. And it got word to Donald that she wanted to play the lead. And, and she wasn't really seen that way by the industry or by Donald Glover at the time. And I think that really signaled to him that she was game and she was ready. Uh, and that ultimately led to, once he did cast her in the lead role, um, a really fruitful collaboration that where you see her just completely trusting of his directorial hand, particularly he helms the pilot, um, and just his overall vision, along with creator Ginny Neighbors. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Let's take a listen. All right, we've got Dominique Fishbeck here to talk uh, a little bit about Swarm, which is a really intense, ambitious show featuring a really intense, ambitious performance. Hi, Dominique. Hi, thanks. It's a really powerful performance, too. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your advocacy for the role. I know um, when it was first brought to you, there was more Marissa, the, the best friend in mind. And I love that you went for this. What kind of confidence did you feel in, when you read the script, feeling like this is the part that I got to play? Um, well, I think it's always like a, a thing where you you know you can do something, but you don't know fully how much you could do until you're given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I just knew that opportunity is like a Dre character for for women, for African-American women. It doesn't come around often. I knew it was the time and that I was ready. Hadn't, hadn't led a project yet, and I knew that I was also ready to do that. So when they told me about it, um, and he told me he wanted to play, me, play Marissa. I got off the phone. I told my team, listen, I'm very thankful. Please let them know I'm thankful that they consider me for Marissa. But I'm going to have to, like, decline because I do. I want to play Dre. 
Um, and then my team was like, well, you might have to fight for it. And I was like, well, if that's the case, so be it. But I um, got on the phone with Donald. He asked, like, why Why do you want, what's going on? And I just told him, I don't want to catch up to myself as an actor. I also don't want to put myself in my own artistic prison. Meaning that I was so used to playing characters that were, quote unquote, easy to love or wrap your arms around. That fans gravitate towards because they love them so much. And, you know, I I love that feeling. I love for the fans to be like, oh, I, I love this person. I didn't know how they were going to relate to Dre. But I didn't want to miss an opportunity and sell myself short for a fair perception that didn't even have to be the case. And it wasn't. People are just really excited about the role. Yeah. Um, he said, well, that's, if that's the role you want, that's the role you get. And he said, because I know you could do it. And then I got the phone and I was like, well, why did I want that? And I started <laughs> getting scared. And I was like, I don't even know all of the scripts. And then I started, when I got as many as I had, which was three, I, instead of, I usually journal as my characters, but this right. time on a page, her lines didn't lend itself to her true psychology. So I just had mm-hmm. to journal as myself to identify anything that would cause a block for me as Dominique playing Dre. Like what was going to, uh, I had to clear my vessel so that I could authentically play her and the camera wouldn't pick up any ill feelings I had towards what she was doing. That's fascinating. What kinds of blocks did you encounter as you were journaling for yourself? Like, what did you have to push through to do this? Uh, well, there was some, like, and, it, and it's so funny because some things that you might harp on, it doesn't end up being in the, the show at all. Yeah. So imagine not taking something because of something that you thought was going to be. I think it was a level of dark versus light. And what does it mean to be light in the world or do light work? I'd always, like, again, done characters that often played in light. And even if they were hard on the outside, the inside was soft. I never played the person that was engulfed by the darkness. And what does that mean? I know I had a bunch of, like, kids that have been looking up to me. And as an actor, too, and as a, as a Black actress, a lot of times we talk about how it somehow becomes that we're responsible for the representation of all of us. And so sometimes when we pick certain roles... It's not just about, oh, I want to play this. It's going to be fun. It's like, well, what is the perception? What is, you know, mm-hmm. you, you end up being responsible for so many things. And I just really didn't want that responsibility. I wanted to make art. Um, it reminded me of Charlize Theron and Monster and Boys Don't Cry, Hilary Swank and Heath Ledger, the Joker. And I was like, I want to make art. And I'm sure that there's a lot of black women that want to see themselves in just different roles. And that was the response that I got. So that was exciting. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, that's one of the reasons the project is so exciting is it's it's really bold and it's something Donald Glover or Jenny Neighbors are certainly known for uh, with Atlanta, but especially so maybe, maybe with this show. Uh, another reason for that is the fact that you're really careening between genres in this show. I mean, you have to play, as you were saying, an enormous like range of modes and moods and, and, you know, from funny to scary. Was there one particular like quality of the show episode maybe that was the scariest for you that felt like the most uncharted territory? Definitely the last episode where she kills her girlfriend because yeah. at this point we hadn't seen her kill a black woman. I actually don't mm. know if she, you know, she did. And this was different because she loved Rashida and you can see that she had remorse. It was the only one she mourned about after. And and so it really was that the hunger or the the, the addiction to killing actually took over her and she had no control over it. I think before she she did. And this time she just didn't. And and it was the first one that was with her bare hands as opposed to an object. So it was really close and really intimate. Um so that was hard for me. And then I literally left work and I got to like the apartment I was staying in and I couldn't stay up. My like my body was aching. It was like and I remember being like because I knew I'd done a lot of work and that my spirit probably was protecting me this whole time. Yeah. You know, to like keep me keep me together and so it was really it, it that one took a, a took a toll on me for sure it may sound like a strange question but what were the mechanics of figuring out murder scenes essentially you know have figuring you know character you're playing that you have some empathy with i'm sure um, but it's also doing these pretty monstrous things um how do you square that in terms of the way you play it yeah well one thing that i wanted to i, I read this book called auditioning on camera by joseph hacker and one of the things that he said that really stuck out to me was, um, you don't have to riddle your characters with shortcomings. 
if your character is a snake, he's going to betray his best friend no matter how loyal you play him. If hmm. your character is a thief, he's going to steal and betray no matter how uh, genuine or whatever you play him. So for me, I don't have to riddle Dre with murderous tendencies or qualities or because she is that no matter what. So I really went from heart first. The thing that I connected to that I thought was universal was love. She loved Marissa and she loved Nyjah. I know what it's like to love my sister. Obviously, I don't know what it's like to love to that, that extent. Thank God. But... But I know what it's like to love, and that's something that the audience could relate to, even if they can't relate to anything else. So I think just approaching the murder scenes just from a technical standpoint is making sure that we had a therapist on set. Because mm-hmm. I remember when we were doing Judas and the Black Messiah, and I had to like shield Daniel's body when they, when they were like murdering Sherman Fred. Mm-hmm. We looked over, and the director, Shaka, was like, we should have had a therapist on set. And I'm like, yeah, we should have. Huh. The night the night before, I couldn't sleep. My body was reacting, and I realized that my body couldn't differentiate what, with what I told my mind to believe. And if that could happen with love, then what could happen with something as heavy as Dre and these murders? And I did not want to find out. So I tried to take those type of precautions um, and then allow myself to be present in the moments. Was there anything you just needed for yourself in addition to that that kind of work and you know having that therapist um, playing a different kind of role like this and one that is so emotionally demanding? Like, did you have to go to bed earlier? <laughs> like stuff like that. That I wish you... I could have. <laughs> it wasn't. It just didn't let any room for that. It was like yeah. a. It was like a like a acting boot camp where where I where there's no other series regulars in the show and so Dre, right. the Dre is in every single frame. Every episode, there's no B storyline, so you don't cut to somebody else and follow them. So every day that the crew was on set, I was on set. You know, you know, a lot of times with actors, the crew stays and you might have a day off because it's the other person's day. I was there with them from the beginning to the end of the day. And so even with the monologue in uh, in episode five in the mall, where she, where she makes up this whole story about working with me and Nyjah, that the day before that, I didn't even know that the monologue was the day after because I could only I only had the capacity to be present and focus on what was at hand at that time. So then I get home and I'm like, oh no, that big monologue is tomorrow morning. So I just just memorize that morning and just throw myself into it. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. You bring up an interesting thing about being a lead that part of it's just like having to have a level of presence and involvement that is not true of more of a supporting character. Were there things you learned about, you know, production or filmmaking, especially working with someone like Donald Glover on the pilot, who's such an, you know, amazing filmmaker that you can kind of carry with you going forward? Well, one, just to like ask, because if I didn't ask, I wouldn't have the role. Uh, If I didn't ask, I wouldn't be a producer. And those are all things like being a producer. That was something that I, I brought that kind of energy that, uh, attention to details where I bring to every single character. Yeah. Um, and so I so I wanted to make sure that doing this role, I, I would have a voice in it and being able to speak and say, hey, I think this, I think that is like really, really important. Also, like he's really, he's barely any flux, any like, he's not flustered by a lot of things, Donald. Like it, it, I remember one time we were on set and we were running behind and he's like sitting there and he's like, I'm mad. And literally, it wasn't like it wasn't like mad or yelling. It was I was right. like, oh, that's your mad face. He was like, yeah, because we were like we were, we were like behind. But he was like, I'm mad. And it was kind of cool because I do feel like, in a sense, 
you know, the director, that energy is what is carried on to the AD, to the PAs, and it, it trickles down. So if you have a director that's high strung or really angry, it's going to, you know, go down the line. But when you have one that's kind of just like calm, it, I feel like it changes the, the dynamic bit. Yeah, especially when the show is anything but calm, right? Yeah. <laughs> Probably helps yes. out a little. Um, you mentioned modeling this to an extent on on some transformative performances, which which is interesting to me too because you've been around a number of them as as an actor. Like uh, I think of uh, the Samuel Jackson show you did, Ptolemy Gray, um, or even Judas. I mean, that's quite an incredible performance from Daniel Kaluuya. You, looking maybe at those two as an example, what kinds of things did you observe watching them work uh, that you were able to carry into this? I think in school you learn the art of acting and then and then I think along the lines they make you feel like fame and movie stardom is not the thing and it's not as important as the craft and sure it is you, you have to have a, a certain uh, knowledge of your craft for sure but then there's, it is important there's something about being a movie star and knowing exactly what that requires and I think Sam was really like hey make sure you have your own hair and makeup person like you have you have personals you have things that you could put in your in your contract so that you're taken care of it's a lot of energy especially you go to different sets and you have to work with so many different people but then intimately on your hair and your the first people that see you in the morning at night whether you're emotional like you just need a circle around you to protect your energy so that when you are when you're performing, whether it's during action or after, you're able to take care of yourself more. So that was really important. And I think with Daniel, one of the things that I just appreciated was his ability to compartmentalize and teach me how to do that. I remember it was a scene that I had been talking to Shaka about for so long, being like, it's not right yet, it's not right. And he gave me the time up until we were shooting to like figure out the answer to it. And then the day before, I'm like, oh, I haven't spoke to Shaka, but it's this, and I, I, I'm really sure. And then um, Danny was like, oh, I agree with you. I'm, I'll talk to him. And I said, when? He was like, tomorrow. I said, tomorrow, but we're, we're, we're shooting tomorrow. He says, sometimes when people are so focused, like when they have so much to focus on, the best time to bring it to them is when they have nothing else to focus on but the, but the task at hand. And so the next morning, I was like, I want to hope that I hope Daniel spoke to him, and he did. And then we were able to sit there. I was able to sit there with Shaka and help correct the scene. But if I had done it earlier, it just wouldn't have not been. You know what I mean? Because it's so yeah. many other things. So I think taking that into knowing that oh, sometimes people can only focus on what's at hand. And sometimes I want to give advance notice because I think that's better for me. I might like it better, but when you're in the throw of things and moving, that might just be that thing. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. It's it's the accumulation of things you learn on different kinds of sets. Uh, I first came to know you through David Simon shows, um, Show Me a Hero and The Deuce. Uh, and I, I associate his shows with huge casts of, in a lot of cases, like veteran actors, actors who've been around for a long time who maybe are not as famous, um, and just these really incredible companies especially as you're coming up as an actor in, in television, what was it like to navigate those spaces um, as, as a kind of newcomer at the time? Um, you know, I think the, the most uh, awkward or whatever f moment that I had was in Show Me a Hero when, you know, we had done the scene and it was well. And then Paul Haggis was like, okay, now we'll just do it again. And you can do whatever, like you do whatever you want. Say, like, say whatever you want. And I come from theater. The play is the play. It's different from it's different from like yeah. a screenplay where somebody's like, oh yeah. So I was like, I think I did it the same exact way because I was so used yeah. to like doing that. But otherwise, I didn't really have any inhibitions about working with actors who have been doing it a long time. I've always been such a sponge um, for it, and just okay. I remember. Uh, being in a hair and makeup trailer with Oscar Isaac and just asked him like, hey, Oscar, how did you prepare for this? Like, what what do you do? And he told me like, oh, I read the script over and over, like at the beginning, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, wow. And he goes, well, what do you do? And I was like, oh, well, I like to journal as my character. like, But I didn't expect for him right. to ask me. So that was really lovely. And then watching how like Maggie Gyllenhaal and like Margarita Levita, like they care so much about the doings of the character. I remember uh, Maggie had to work a actual film. like, mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, you don't need to know how to work it because it's, 
you know, by the time we come into the scene, you're off of it. And she said, no, I have to know how to work it because Candy knows how to work it. So they took the time and like just showed her how to do it. And so that became, you know, it was at the top of the scene, but you actually see that she knows what she's doing. And so I remember being like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make sure that I ask so that I know what the character requires. So I just picked up a, a bunch of things. Love that. I don't know why, but that makes me think of in Swarm, you running someone over with your car, because if I'm correct, you didn't know how to drive at the time. <laughs> I, I still don't. <laughs> oh, you still don't? Okay. I didn't want to assume. I didn't want to assume. <laughs> I, still, I still don't. <laughs> so how did you do that, not knowing? Like, what, what, did, well, what were th- basic things you needed to know how to do? Yeah, well there, was, well, there was stunts, and even if I knew how to drive, stunts would have done that anyway, Right. Uh, the, that particular kill. I just remember one time they were like, yeah, we need you to, like, drive the car, like, a couple feet. You think you could do that? <laughs> And I was like, I mean, yeah, I think so. Because at first it had a, like literally had a truck pulling my car for like like five feet. I don't know. Oh, it was wow. like it was like a lot. And it was like, it just doesn't look real. Do you mind like driving it? I was like, I mean, I can. And I did it. And it was simple. But yeah. they didn't even end up using it. So like my real driving is not even in the <laughs> <laughs> Um, You know, speaking of taking in a kind of role that particularly black women, black actresses haven't gotten to play before. I'm curious if you've found now people starting to ask you like advice, how you do things um, in the same way that maybe you were asking when you were on show me hero. Yeah. I find on social media, a lot of the fans, when I do live, they really love to like know your process. What books are you reading? People keep saying, if you have a masterclass, I would sign up. Like, I hope you have a masterclass. Um, but in terms of like my, my, my peers, I think the best thing that they've been saying is like, like Dom, you really revolutionized what we've been given as black actresses. Like you, you, Mm -hmm. like you changed the game with, with doing this performance because now it, it opens the idea of like what we can do and what we're capable of. And so now when I'm talking to my reps, it's like, no, you see that how Dominique did that. I want something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. so that's really empowering. Um, for for me to hear. Yeah. Is there any kind of performance model or something you want to push for next? I mean, this is the kind of role and performance in part because it is so good that I would think expands what you think you can do and what the industry hopefully thinks you can do as well. Yeah. You know, I just try to be open. I think if I, if I would, if I, cause I'm a big believer in manifestation, but I also know that you have to let go and not hold on too tight or, you know, be specific, but also leave room for the miraculous to happen. And, and so I put on, um, a vision board, PDF monster, boys don't cry. Like those images are on there. Um, and wow. I put like Donald Glover on there, like, like, you huh. know, so, so it was, it's crazy. Damps, I put damps and edges on there. Like, uh, Daniel before we did Judas. Like, so it wasn't that it had to be this particular thing. It's like, the, oh, these people, these type of things is what I like. Um, and so I try to leave myself open because I wouldn't have been able to manifest Swarm. You know, I, I didn't think I had the capacity to manifest. Like, it's literally oh, like a one-woman show in mm-hmm. seven episodes. And the fact that I get to play Tony in the last episode is just, is one of my favorite things about the show. Um, being able to kind of move through the the um, masculine and feminine energies and the wounded and feminine energies and those shadow sides of the human psyche. That's so mm-hmm. much fun to me. Um, so I, I I try not to limit it to something specific. Um, I also leave room for whatever in my heart, whatever in my heart I want to do, I know that it's going to be great. So I don't try to match the originality of Swarm. I think I'll be setting myself up, right? But I love romance. I love rom-coms. If I could get a timeless classic like like uh, When Harry Met Sally, I would love that. You know, and that's completely different. I love doing things that's completely different. It doesn't have to be the same. doesn't have to have the same originality. Like I said, I feel like you'd be kind of limiting yourself and then stuck. But but if I go in my heart and I say, this makes me feel good, that these are these are the reasons why I do it, then that's great. I want to do an epic romance, like a Titanic or like a notebook. And I'm such a yeah. romantic. So that's the part that I'm looking forward to. Okay, love it. That's that's <laughs> next on the that's next on the board. <laughs> yes. Um a lot of actors as they're coming up uh, have to do, let's say, a certain amount of um, you know, maybe not the most fulfilling projects or roles. And 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 from what I know of your work, it's 
incredibly impressive how much of it is like amazing stuff. Like David Simon, Judas, this, uh, and not a lot of like quote unquote crap in between, if any. Was it hard to be kind of choosy like that when you assume have to take the jobs you get or how did that work for you? Because it's, it's pretty unusual. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, no, it's more so like just having faith and again, going to my inner child. She was the one that watched movies that I want to do that. And she had a list of things that really inspired her. And this was before social media. This was before her, her really knowing that there was going to be critics and people saying, I want to see her like this. I want to, you can't, you mm-hmm. can't do this and do that. I remember being like, hey, I want to, I want to do like those critically acclaimed movies. And I want to do like them franchises. I want to do everything. So, so it's not going to have the same, everything's not going to have the same merit especially because I want to expand in, in different things. I want to do fantasy. I want to be a princess. I want to have a sword. You know, like there's, there's just so many mm-hmm. things. And so I, even when I'm watching certain projects, I have to watch it from knowing what the genre is and knowing yes. that there is people, if you don't love this one, you know that there's going to be something else like that's going to be up your alley because I am so interested in doing so many different genres and mediums that hopefully by the time it's all said and done, they're like, oh, I love a bunch of that. That wasn't really what I loved, but other people loved it and, and they found out. Like Transformers is so different from Judas. That's what I told Donald. I said, I mean, after you do something like Judas and the Black Messiah and you do Transformers, what do you do next? That's why I want to do Swarm. I yeah. just want to keep it on its toes. I just want to keep exciting myself and figuring out what it is that I could do. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, mentioning Transformers, I saw you used to work at uh, a Regal Cinemas in Battery Park. You have this huge blockbuster coming out. How does that feel? Like, as a kind of full circle moment? It's wild. I just walked. Uh, I'm in, at Times Square right now, and I just walked past the billboard in Times Square. <laughs> Me being on the poster for Transformers, like this is wild. It's wild because. Not only because of it's just it's Transformers, but from because where I come from, and I'm from East New York, Brooklyn. I didn't see a lot of people who came from areas like mine. Every time I go back to my hood, they're like, "Yo, Dom, what you doing over here?" But I'm proud of you, Dom. Dom. There's a certain way that they say my name. There's a certain gravitas that they, the way that they say it, and I'm so inspired by you. Or they just I remember you walking down the street with your book bag saying, "I'm going to rehearsal," you know, and like, look, you actually did it. So to me, it's like. I actually did that. Like, and I get to do it with Anthony. And me and yeah. Anthony were friends before this. And we're both oh, from Brooklyn. And we used to talk. We used to meet in a cafe and say, all right, maybe we got to write something together. We got to do some epic together, something so Brooklyn. And now it's both. It's, it's epic. It's so Brooklyn. But it's also Transformers. And when I think about, when I think about destiny and fate, I think about who are the people that always from the beginning of, of time, essentially, was always going to be woven into your your story and the fabric of your history and your destiny. And so I met Anthony and I always felt like there was a, like, like something like a soul bond from the beginning because we always were going to do Transformers together and make history together like that, being the first black and brown people to, to lead the franchise. So it's, it's very exciting. Um, yeah, I'm just... I'm over the moon, so. so for our second interview, I got to talk to Paul Walter Hauser, who stars in Blackbird. Now, he's already won a couple awards for his performance on this show, um, which is on Apple TV. And I just think the character he created was so impressive and memorable and just sort of sticks with you. So I was really curious to see how he came about. Uh, David, have you had a chance to check out what he was able to do in Blackbird? Yeah, I mean, same exact reaction. It's just a complete embodiment. And I feel like with him pretty much every time, the thing that immediately stands out is the very specific approach he takes to developing a character. It's never what you expect. Uh, Did you talk a little bit about his process in that regard and how he figures these guys out? Yeah, we really especially dug in to the voice because I think it's really unique. And he talked about sort of calibrating it and making sure it didn't sound too uh, cartoony because, you know, this real person did have this sort of high-pitched voice. But it also changed when he was lying versus when he may have been telling the truth. So he went really deep and and also talked a lot about how he found uh, sobriety during this process. And this process really 
essentially changed his life. So we go deep on this one, um, and everyone should uh, go ahead and take a listen here. Today's guest is Paul Walser-Hauser, who stars in the Apple TV Plus series Blackbird. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Rebecca. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you about the show because it was one where, you know, when I finished watching, I couldn't stop thinking about your performance. And I'm so curious how you did it. So maybe you could start by talking to me about how this role came to you and what it was about what you read in the script that really made you say, yes, I want to try to take this on. I think a lot of it had to do with just working with Dennis Lehane and Taryn Edgerton. Um, you know, as far as acting goes, I'm the type of person who I don't love playing the um, the straight man, as they call it, in comedy. Yes. I very much like to lean into something that's uh, quirky or overly specific <laughs> or uh, menacing. And and those are kind of the performances that stay with me, you know, yeah. like Gary Gary Oldman in True Romance or uh, John Goodman in The Big Lebowski. <laughs> like I like that type of stuff. So I just saw it as an opportunity to do that kind of specific, uh, detailed performance with Dennis's writing and Taryn, who is just such a dream collaborator, dance partner to have in a in a project. Did you know Taryn well before this, or what was it about him that you felt like, yeah, this could work? No, I'd only seen him in Rocket Man and like heard his voice in the Sing movies and watched him in Kingsman. So I'd seen him in maybe like four or five things, and I just think he's really good. And uh, and I thought he and I would be interesting together. You know, there are certain pairings that interest me, and he was one of those pairings that made sense to me. Also. I, I like these hungry people who kind of do more than one thing. You know, Taryn truly produced that show and was a credited producer. And I, I was with Margot Robbie when she produced I, Tanya, And, you know, they have a similar thing where they're both very humble and they work really hard and, and they're a lot of fun to hang out with. So yeah, that was kind of the really nice blessing too out of this show is that I just got to make a new friend in Taryn. And, you know, he and I have just, always been checking in on each other and supporting each other, reading, reading stuff and being like, Hey, this might be good for you type of a thing, like sending it That's along. Cool. I've, I really got, I really got a lot of good relationships out of that show. And so the character you play, Larry Hall, uh, is a real person. This is based on a true story. And you've, you've played a quite a few um, real people before, obviously Richard Jewell and uh, Sean Eckhart um, and I, Tanya. I'm curious how you approach a character when it's when it's a real person. Is your is your preparation different? I'm I'm a weirdo. I don't know that I have like an exact process with certain things other than you know, I always go back to immersion and commitment. So you immerse yourself in all the little details and things and then you just try to overcommit to whatever it is you're doing, uh which for me is often hallmarked by a lack of vanity you know i really kind of have to you know i'm I, I put on 30 pounds to play sean eckhart after losing like 30 pounds the year i booked the part yeah i joined orange theory fitness this uh gym and i yep. was i like lost 35 pounds put on some muscle feeling really good about myself and then uh i got the part and i looked at a photo of the guy and i'm like that's a big dude like so yeah, I you know Craig Gillespie and those those people who made the movie they they didn't tell me to gain weight I did that on my own electively knowing it would be beneficial um, so yeah that's just kind of the thing is immersion and commitment but I I really love you know my dream as a kid was to be on Saturday Night Live so like growing up and seeing people doing impersonations celebrity impressions that. That's something I'm very fond of to this day. I always get a kick out of hearing Bill Hader do Alan Alda. And you think to yourself, you're like, who does an Alan Alda impression? That's amazing. <laughs> you know, and and so I think that's kind of the fun of it, too, is how close can I get to the real guy? Now, with Larry, he's not like Charles Manson, where there's a million hours of footage. I kind of had to go back to the creative drawing board and find some nuance and idiosyncratic stuff to play with 
but at the same time, I it's I would be lying if I said like I fully I was the architect of that character. I mean, Dennis Lehane's writing is yeah as as scrumptious a piece of literature as you can get as an actor, you know. Well, when you use this example of gaining all that weight for I, Tanya, what was sort of the most um, demanding part of transforming for this project, whether physical or emotional? Oh, man. I mean, being in, being in New Orleans for five and a half months uh, was not good for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nothing against the city itself. It's, it's a tremendous city for all the reasons you would imagine you know, there's a reason people flock and, and, and go there every year for the jazz festival and for the food and for the history. But I just, it's also a pretty dark city. It's got some darkness to it. And I was going through a dark patch in my own life and going through a rough patch while playing a rough character. You know, it's, it's a tricky sort of thing. And, and I really, I really was lacking uh, light and levity, I'll say, during the shoot. Whereas to compare it to I, Tanya or Richard Jewell, it's like I, Tanya, I was having the time of my life. I was just showing up, making people laugh and then, you know, uh, trying to coax Sebastian Stan into going out and drinking with me. Um, Richard Jewell was, you know, six hour days with Clint Eastwood. And then by 430, we're all at happy hour sharing a plate of Branzino and pasta and bottles of wine, me and John Hamm and. Rockwell and Olivia Wilde. So it's like those were very kind of chummy, convivial and had tons of levity. This was more like it felt like work. You know, it it was pretty daunting of a task. And, you know, I can be the most I can be a very confident, gregarious person. I can also be a total isolator who doubts himself and is woefully insecure. So like there'd be moments in the middle of the show where I'd be like, do I like this choice I made? Is this good? Am I hitting it? Am I nailing this? And then it's like, well, you're in episode four or five. It's not like you can really change anything. You, you've already committed to these things. You better hope to God you don't suck. So that, that type of dialogues in your head all the time, you know, sort of adding rocks and bricks to the backpack as you go uphill in the performance, you know? I've read other interviews where you talked about how this was sort of a tumultuous time for you. And I'm curious, did you learn new tools to sort of handle being in that emotional state, especially for such a long time? Did you have to change behavior or? Yeah, well, getting sober was a big part of that. Um, I had a few different people speak into my situation and, uh, and help me get sober. And uh, that was a big deal. And I think also just finding finding outlets, you know, like I I really desperately needed to find some form of outlet. And for me, that was, you know, I would shoot hoops, do yoga, watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, play old like Super Nintendo ancient video game systems with my with my buddy and my my assistant like. I really, I really needed to try to detach, but it was also being in New Orleans, being pretty isolated from my loved ones, dealing with uh, addiction. It was, it was just kind of, it was, it was like a stain on your clothing that won't come out. It was dimming and I was getting at it. I was picking away at it, but it was always kind of there and I could always kind of feel or see it. How long did it take you to sort of feel back to balanced after the shoot was over? Oh, man. I I was California sober for a while where I said I was sober, but I was still using marijuana every day. Uh, And then once I once I got sober, sober and started on Zoloft and like regularly went to therapy, that's when things cleared up. I would say like January of 2022 is when I started coming out of the fog and uh, started making intelligent emotional decisions uh, rather than, you know, destructive ones. Uh, do you sort of see that whole experience as sort of a silver lining now that you've come out on the other end? Oh, 100%. Well, well, first off, I'm there to do a job. I did the job 
everybody did the job well. I'm super proud of our cast and crew. And I think we entertained a lot of people, told a good story. And we're, we're one of the unique stories in, in modern times that, that, you know, has a happy ending to some degree. I mean, the guys behind bars for life, you lost, you know, fuck him. He lost. And I, I do think we're a society that is increasingly getting very comfortable with darkness and, and allowing evil to kind of win out in the end. Uh, sometimes just in the name of honesty or practicality, but it's like, uh, I'm not a fan of that uh, narrative uh, whatsoever. So I'm, I'm happy with how that went. But yeah, no, it was also this whole thing was a catalyst for me cleaning myself up and learning how to love myself and love the people around me much better. So, you know, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm forever indebted to the folks who hired me. Cause I just, my life, uh, both professionally and personally has only gotten better because of the show. And, and that's not something you can ever plan on or intend. It's just something in hindsight, you go, wow, I did not know that that was going to be such an influential piece of my life, you know? And from what I understand, Larry had sort of this high-pitched voice that you capture in your performance. That, I feel like, could be such a tough thing to pull off in film and television because people just assume it's not real. But yeah. I, I'm curious how you sort of found the the right balance for that part of his character. So I'm a real actor junkie. Like, I listen to stuff like this. Like, I, I watch interviews yeah. and, and watch the roundtable stuff and, you yeah. know. So I, I don't like really famous movie star actors. I like really smart actors. I like mm -hmm. guys like Mahershala Ali and and Peter Sarsgaard, Stephen Graham, uh, Mads Mikkelsen. And, you know, when they do vocal work, it's really it's usually very thoughtful. Like Peter Sarsgaard played Robert F. Kennedy in that Jackie Onassis film. And he he wasn't trying to do the Kennedy thing of. You know, I parked my car in Harvard Yard. Uh, yeah. And then Mahershala Ali, when he did Green Book, which I know this town like loves hating on Green Book, but whatever. It's a very entertaining film. His performance is incredible in that movie. Yeah, I mean, him he, and Vigo really yeah. crushed it. Um, yeah. Vigo's another smart actor. Um, but Mahershala, he said that the real doctor that he played, his his tone was even higher. Uh, like real high and he thought it might be distracting. So I kind of took those notes of, of guys like Peter and Mahershala where I was like, okay, find a way to do the voice without it being distracting. And I kept it really honest in the first two episodes where it sounded like the real guy. And by episode three, it started to uptick unconsciously. And, and I was so embarrassed by it, but Dennis Lahane pulled me aside. He said, dude, just, Use that to your advantage. You know, I think psychologically it makes sense that he's kind of code switching and using the voice, weaponizing it uh, for psychology. So I started doing that with with the character. And then you see that when he's speaking, you know, fluffy in episode four about his hometown, he's like, there were soda parlors and milk shops and what? And then all of a sudden when he in episode five or six, when he's talking about these dark, disgusting things that he's done, his voice kind of drops down into this. And it's like that's when he's being a little more honest or uh, open, like he doesn't have to play the character of the, you know, it's it's almost like it's almost like a, a really cute animal that is capable of this vicious bite or scratch, you know, and and the kitten kind of pulls out the tiger claws when it wants to. And that's sort of the the duality we tried playing with a little bit. And I, I think we pulled it off, but at first I was terrified because once again, I'm like, oh my God, I can't redo episode right. three. <laughs> like, is this, is this going to have any congruence or continuity? Thank God for editors, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the level of commitment required for a limited series when it comes to the time you spend with a character is is quite significant compared to a film a two-hour movie i guess yeah it's a lot i was uh, people come up to me they're like is there going to be a season two of blackbird and i'm like dude if there is i won't know about it because i'm not playing that character ever again yeah. <laughs> i am all set on larry hall i'm okay <laughs> 
Um, and so you've already won a Globe and a Critics Choice. Uh, you know, I've been at, I've been at those events watching watching you take the stage, and I'm curious where your head is at in moments like that. When you know that part of this experience, getting to sort of accept those accolades. I'm always one. I don't want to forget names. I really I really <laughs> botched my Golden Globe speech. I felt awful. I I didn't. I forgot to think. Taryn and Dennis and the Hollywood Foreign Press. Uh, those are like the only people you're supposed <laughs> to mention um, in that speech. Um, but no, I, I think I go up there and I'm very nervous because, you know, I love my community of entertainment folks. And it was so the Globe thing was so overwhelming. I stood up. The first person I see is Spielberg looking up at me from the Fableman table. And then I look over and I embrace Taryn and Dennis and my wife. And then I see Sebastian, who's a friend of mine. We did Itania and embrace him. And then I get on stage and the first person I see is Tarantino. It's just like, it's, it's not, it's very surreal, put it that way. So I, I get up there. I try to remember names. I try to think of something clever or funny to say. And I try to be myself, and that's kind of been the thing. Um, hopefully I remember. I, I just hate I hate not honoring other people because I know that I didn't get here on my own. So uh, it's always best to have a list just in case they do call your name so that you don't botch that, you know. I feel like one of the few things I'll remember from this recent award season is this smash burger bit you and Jamie Lee Curtis had. Can you explain what that was to me? <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. So I was, I was in a group text with her and some other friends of ours and she, she and I met, I was doing press for Richard Jewell and she was doing press for knives out. And we just, we kind of had a meet cute yeah. on an airplane and, and she's just such a cool presence. Like she's so funny and strong and kind and has a lot of wisdom so she's just one of these people I love. And and she said, she goes, uh, I think I'm going to see you at the Globes. And she took a photo of like my chair that had my face and name on it and then her chair. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I said, uh, I would come, but I'm making smash burgers in my house right now for my family, which I was doing on the griddle as I'm texting. And she goes, you better bring me a smash burger to the Globes. Nice. So I thought about literally making one the next day. And bringing it, and I thought, you know, it's going to be greasy. What if I get grease on my clothes? What if I? What if she thinks I'm a weirdo for bringing it because she's like a newer friend? Like, what if I? Right. So I didn't bring it, and the first thing that happens, I'm I'm there for ten minutes on the carpet, and I run into her in front of like Entertainment Tonight, and she goes, "Where's my Smash Burger?" And I'm like, "I I I didn't bring it," and she's like, "Oh, you're and like pretend, you know, fiends disgust or whatever." Yeah. But like they caught it on camera and I think it's on YouTube. And then I was like, you know what? Next award show, I'm bringing her one for sure. So I brought one to Critics' Choice and she got COVID and she wasn't there. So I got on stage to accept the award. And the first thing I said, I was like, I bought this. uh, I brought the smash burger for Jamie Lee Curtis. She's not even fucking here. (laughs) And and hopefully they bleep me out. And, uh, And then she heard about that. So I finally got to give it to her at the AARP Awards. And uh, and then I was there at the SAG Awards with Smashburgers uh, when she won for Everything Everywhere All at Once. And that was such a fun moment, you know. She had such a wonderful speech. And and uh, that just became a joke of like, I think I'm just going to keep bringing food to these award shows because I'm a bigger guy. I love food. And now that I'm sober, it's like food just became way more important right, to me. Right. My only like uh, applicable vice now. So I... I told everybody, I'm like, I'm just going to, you know, when you go to these award shows, they give you a bed of arugula and a couple of olives. And it's Some like hummus okay, yeah, as your meal. I'm just yeah. bringing food every time now. And I'm just going to feed the troops. I, <laughs> my favorite moment of the SAG Awards, I, Sandler, I did some bit where I was eating the burger while looking at the screen when they called my name. I was pretending I didn't know the camera was on me. And Sandler goes, oh, dude, that was hilarious when you did the thing with the burger. <laughs> I, I went over and brought Sandler a burger and that was like, you know, tell your 15 year old self you ran over and brought a cheeseburger to Adam Sandler at an award show. It was a very great moment. 
Food brings everyone together. I think this is a genius plan. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Universal language. Sure. Um, we're almost out of time, but I did want to sort of look ahead. I know you have the instigators, the Doug Lyman film um, coming. Yeah, that was a fun one. That's like yeah. a little ensemble crime comedy. Fun. But what else is like sort of helping you determine what, what, what's next, what, what comes next for you and what else you want to sort of pursue? It's tricky, I think, for a, a guy like me who's kind of in the middle of things, you know, I think, I think if you're Chris Evans or Michael B. Jordan, there's a little bit more of a landscape for you to do what you want to do or kind of set up things on a grander scale. I kind of just wait around and see what comes across the proverbial uh, desk, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I got sent a couple indie films the other day and, you know, they don't pay as much and they're kind of putting stuff together. So it's like you got to put your producer cap on and go, well, I like the script, but what if this is a first-time director? I got to make sure they know what they're doing. Or, you know, the script is decent and they have this actor I love, but what if the actor unattaches and then suddenly I'm in the project and they get so-and-so and it's like, there are all these weird factors to figure out, but more than anything, it's, it's about the writing who are my dance partners on screen and am I going to be able to provide for my family now that I have a second little one and you know, you're paying the agent, the manager, the publicist, the <laughs> business manager, the entertainment attorney. Yeah. LA is expensive. So you know, there will come a day where I'll probably be tugging on the shirts of my CAA people and saying, hey, can you can you just make me a villain in something like a Spy Kids movie or a Marvel <laughs> movie? Can we make that happen, please? I would love to pay my bills. Um, but, you know, the guys I look up to are guys like Phil Hoffman. So the hope is you get to do some thoughtful, cool character work and really leave an impression on folks. All right, and that does it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Becca M. Ford and David. David Canfield 97. And you can also email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com. Our producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.